As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, as we open this word, I pray that we not take it for granted, so easy to, just like lunch at midday, we take that for granted, we take this for granted too, because we have these Bibles so readily available and we think of it, but never let us forget that that is a great blessing. And so we pray that now as it's before us, that the concentration of our minds and hearts Souls would be on this and that you would enable us to hear it and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 1 Kings in chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, please. I want to read this whole chapter. It's a long one. It tells a story that we all ought to hear, an event that took place in ancient Israel. I'll stop along the way, summarize, and, and, and just highlight some key points so that we don't miss them, so we can walk through it and get the guts of it, because what I want to do with this then is to think it through and to think really about the implications of idolatry, we've been talking about idolatry, the implications of idolatry, and then how, how that helps us understand really um, the passion of Jesus. So we have to look at that. So First Kings chapter 21, verse 1, the word of God. Now Naboth, the Jezreelites, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I'll give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would, not eat, and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that, and, that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Okay, so you see what's going on. See the characters here? We've got this man, Naboth, who's new to us. We have Ahab and Jezebel, who aren't, if you've been with us as we've been walking through these Elijah narratives in 1 Kings. Okay, we know Ahab's the king. Jezebel is this wicked woman who's his wife, who has brought the worship of this god Baal, the god of of, of great power, presumably, and, and the god of the storm, the storm god who's able to make it rain so that the crops will grow, so the people will be prosperous. And, and she's brought the, the, this god into the worship of Israel so they'll be dependent not only on, on the Lord, but also on this, this, this idol, this Baal, uh, uh, for their prosperity, if you will, this very powerful Baal as they thought him to be. Well, you, you get the drift that, 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 that Ahab is in his house in Jezreel. He has his palace in Samaria because he's the king, but this is his house in Jezreel, and uh, he wants this vineyard from this neighbor, Naboth, and Naboth says, no, I won't sell it to you. Even though he seems to be Ahab seems to give him a fairer deal, a better vineyard or money for it or whatever. He's not stealing it, if you will. 
And, um, and, uh, but, but, but Naboth actually says, the Lord forbids me to do this. All right? Keep that in your mind. Verse 8. Uh, Jezebel, now Ahab's, you know, he's just a whiner. And so he crawls up in a fetal position, goes to bed. They can't deal with it. And uh, Jezebel comes and rescues him and says, oh, you're the king, obviously. Uh, so I'll get this for you. Verse 8. So she, that is Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in this city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you've cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did just as Jezebel uh, had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and said, Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. So you get the situation. Jezebel sets up this very deceitful plan. Great hypocrisy in this because it's overlaid with these religious overturns of, of fasting and blasphemy and all that kind of thing. She sets up two false witnesses who claim that he's blasphemed the king and God. And so they kill Naboth, and so then um, they're able to take the vineyard. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, so we've got Elijah entering this situation, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I've found you, because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring disaster upon you. I'll utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of uh, Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you've made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat, of, uh, shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the open country the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. They acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, 
whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So you see the, the, the last couple of sentences trying to tell us that the judgment that was coming against Ahab, which is rather gross, and against Je- uh, Jezebel, rather gross, were justified because of the great wickedness. Nobody else was that horrible. And, and so here it is um, laid out. Then verse 27, a twist. We won't really get to this today, but a bit of a twist. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring disaster, the disaster upon his house. So basically, fascinatingly, God is merciful in some measure to, to Ahab. He, he shows some what it looks like, humility, some dejection, uh, whether it's genuine repentance. We don't know, although in the next chapter, uh, you get the impression it wasn't all that genuine. But God does say, uh, I, 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 I won't remove the judgment entirely. Ahab's still going to get killed. But I won't have him see the devastation of his sons and his household. So, so there's that sense of mercy. All right. Now, what's going on here? What, what do we grab from, from, from all of this? First of all, we're outraged, really, as we listen to this, aren't we? Uh, to think that this king and queen uh, killed this righteous man, Naboth, for a plot of land. And what makes that so despicable is that he is the king, which means he's got vineyards all over the place. He's got land. It isn't that he doesn't have land for his little vegetable garden. It's just that he wants this piece of land. He wants this one because it's close by and it's right there. And he looks at it and he says, I've got to have that. We're outraged. Rather like, do you remember the story that Nathan the prophet told to King David to reveal to King David his despicable sin. Remember, David had taken this woman Bathsheba and had her righteous, godly husband essentially killed so he could have her. And he was the king. And remember, Nathan went to David and says, I want to tell you a story. There was this rich man who had great flocks. And there was this poor man who had one little wee lamb. And this little wee lamb was a pet to him and to his family. His children knew this pet by name and this, this lamb would eat at their table. He loved this little lamb and, and this rich man, you see, he had a guest come for dinner and rather than taking one of his own from his flock, which never would have even been missed, he went and he took this wee lamb from this poor man who just had one. And David was outraged. That's what he should have been at himself, but we're outraged at this. It's just like that, isn't it? This is sort of playing that out. This king took this. But now, in Ahab's defense, he did offer a good price. He said, I'll give you a better vineyard or, or I'll, I'll pay you money for it. So he didn't just go and just grab it and at first at least. He, he offered him this price. But, but notice Naboth's response. He said, the Lord forbids it. He said, no, no, no. Why is it that Naboth would, um, would incite, potentially, 
the anger of the king by not making this deal. It seemed like a good deal. Why wouldn't he make this deal? Because Naboth was a godly man. And he knew the scripture. He knew the law of God. The law of God went like this. It said, listen, when you came into this promised land, I divided your inheritance, which was the land, and I gave it tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family. And I said, this land will always belong to your family. So much so that you can never really sell it because at the end of every 50 years, the land will always revert back to its original owners. So there's no way you can ultimately transfer the title of your land because it's, my, it's your inheritance. It's your land, and you can't, you can't give it up. In fact, really, you shouldn't even transfer ownership for, for any of that time unless you really, 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 really have to. But then remember, at the end of 50 years, it comes back to you. So any price that would be had on a piece of land would always be relative to when does it revert back. So if it was going to revert back in 40 years, you might get a higher lease price for it, if you will. Uh, but if it was going to revert back in 10 years, well, not so much because... But even still, you shouldn't ever give up your land unless it was of a financial necessity that you do that. And so Naboth knew that. But, but you, you, you know the response of, of Ahab when Jezebel comes to him and says, why wouldn't he say of the land? And, and he says, well, what's, she says to him, why are you so vexed? Why are you so troubled? He said, well, he wouldn't sell me the land. He never said, well, you know, he couldn't sell me the land because God forbids it. Yeah. Uh, Ahab had no God consciousness at all. It was all about himself. It was all about his own desires. It was all about his own wants. And so he was utterly dejected, you see, by that. And then notice, Jezebel comes on the scene, and, and what she did was clear. She said, well, get this land. I know how to get it. We have to set up this false court. We have to set up all this hypocrisy. We're going to fast. This is something horrible has happened, and, and we, need to, we, we need to be in such great sadness because of Naboth's blasphemy, because he's blasphemed against the king, and he's blasphemed. God, and so we need to set up these two false witnesses to say that, so then he'll be condemned at courts, and he was, and he was killed, and so they could get the land. Now, I have to tell you, when I, when I read this story, as I've been reading for years and years and years, it actually scares me, and here's why, because this is the result of idolatry so impacted in people's lives. See, see, Ahab and Jezebel are so committed to this God, Baal, that, that now they've become the very personification of this idol, this idol of power and possession. And so that's exactly who they are. Everything they see, they want. Everything they want, they think they can have. Everything they think they can have, they go after with whatever it takes in order to get it. That's simply who they are. That's what idolatry does to us. Anytime we elevate something into being the place that God should have, the one who defines us and directs us and all of that, Anytime we have that, you see, that ends up becoming our identity, we become it. The psalmist puts it like this. Turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. 
verses four through eight. The psalmist writes this. Their idols, the there, there are the nations. That's the context here. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats. So, so that's the setup of these idols. We've been through this before we know that. These idols are made by human hands. You see, the, at least the, the outward expression of them are. We make idols all the time in our minds. These material things that are made simply reflect that, right? An idol is that which we elevate into the place of God. Well, when you make them, they look rather silly, really, and you really identify them because they realize that they're our work. We've elevated them to be God. And these things really come from deep within us, this desire for security, this desire for peace, desire for happiness, this desire for ease of life, right? We have that, and, and, and so we want to say, who can secure that for us? And so we, 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 we look out in the horizon and, and we see, well, who can, who can secure that for us? So it might be that, that, that to, to, to gain that security, to gain that peace, to gain that happiness, and we, we idolize, for instance, hard work. We idolize our work because that's going to get it for us. Or we idolize marriage, perhaps, because that's going to get it for us. Or we idolize our children because that's going to get it for us. We idolize possessions because having them will get it for us. It'll give us the security. It'll give us the peace. It'll give us control over life that we really want. It might be sexual pleasure. That, that might be it. That, that'll get it for us. If I have, if I have that, then you see that, that, that gives me power, that gives me security, that gives me a sense of happiness. All of that, I think that'll do it. But the crazy thing is, as this passage points out, that they really can't. If we look at those, they, they are simply the work of our own hands. We've elevated those things. We've said, oh, yes, that can get it for us. But can it really? But then the sobering part of all this is the next verse, that is verse 8. The psalmist writes, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Now, that's amazing. Basically, what the psalmist is saying we mold idols, and then they mold us. Uh, Greg Beale, a professor at the Wheaton College, uh, puts it like this. He says, that which we revere, we resemble. That which we revere, we resemble to our ruin or our restoration. That which we revere, we resemble to our ruin or restoration. Because you see, we've been made to be and are imaging beings. We've been made in the image of God. What that means is that we are to reflect him. We're to look upon him, get our identity, our life from him, and reflect that identity, that life, so that we should be showing forth the glory of God. We should be showing forth who he is. That's who we've been made to be. When that gets perverted, 
That is to say, when we put something else in the place of God, we image that. We gaze upon it. We revere it. We worship it. We resemble it. And so what happened to Ahab and Jezebel is that they placed this God Baal in the place of God. He was the God of power and possession and all of that. They became that. And and, and little by little by little by little, it didn't happen overnight, little by little by little by little, we're seeing that as, as we're reading through these narratives in 1 Kings, so much so that by this point in time, it gets to that place where... We can just see it. Here's the king. He's got vineyards out the yin-yang. He doesn't need another vineyard. But it just drives him crazy that Naboth has the one right next door. And he wants that one. Not even to use as a vineyard, but to use for vegetables, a vegetable garden. Suspicious already, a guy who likes vegetables. But there he is, you see. It drives him crazy. No, he does the honorable thing, but, but that doesn't work. But Jezebel, you see, she's a better worship of her Baal than he is. She's become more Baal than he is. And so she reflects him. What would Baal the storm God do now? He would come in and he would grab a hold of this land. And so all that she knows to do, she has no scruples at that point in time. Why? Because there's nothing more valuable than getting the land. Everything can be sacrificed to that, all her integrity, her own soul. So what does she do? Sets up this blasphemous charge, this false charge, cloaked in religious garment of fasting and blasphemy and all of that, and then murders, essentially, neighbors to get the land. So it's scary for me, you see, is that I look into my own life and I think it's no small thing to elevate something into the place of God. To make it the absolute that this is what I must have. Because eventually I become that. Eventually, it'll be known, it'll be seen, it'll come from my own destruction, you see. It's no small thing at all. So we must always be careful with those things, however little it may appear. Things don't happen overnight, and it's always difficult to know when good things like family, like work, like children, like even possessions, move from being that which is nice and good and helpful and all of that and a gift from God to that which then has become absolutized in some way to become my life. It doesn't seem to happen overnight, and it's not easy to know when that, when that really happens, but, but, but it can, you see. And that's, that's a great danger of a dear friend who's a, who's a professional baseball player and has spent his life uh, in the business of baseball. There's a great line, and he always says, baseball's a great game, but it's a really bad God. But he says, for many, it's become a God that ruins their life. You see, marriage is a great blessing, but it's a bad God. Children, great blessing, bad God, you see. Work, great blessing to have work, good work, productive work, 
bad God. Your flat screen might be a great blessing. And all the other things that you have, bad God, right? Money that you have in the bank, your retirement, whatever that happens to be, your, your wealth, blessing, bad God, right? Your health, blessing, bad God. For those married, sexual pleasure, blessing, bad God, right? You see, these things, when they become God, then cause us to make decisions, to compromise for them, to sacrifice at the altar of that God, that which must never be sacrificed. Very dangerous, you see. That's what we see in Ahab Jezebel. I read this. First, I'm outraged. Secondly, it makes me afraid because I see way too much of my own life in the midst of these compromises because of idolatry. However outrageous this is, let's, let's bump this forward just, just a bit. Because you see, on this day, this Palm Sunday day, what we find is the same thing going on that went on in the days of Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel, just with a different group of people. Another idolatry that plays itself out in a very, very, very similar fashion. You see, Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king, and there's a group of people there that see their lives threatened by that. Now, at that moment in time, there's a group of people who think it's great, and they crown him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But, but, but there's another group of people very dismayed by Jesus coming, and it's people who have as their idol, their very life, their status, their position, and they realize that if Jesus is indeed the king, and every indication by that point in time showed that he was a great and powerful one, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, which, which really upset this group of people. And now he's coming, looking as a king, and if he really is king, then he's going to dethrone them. And it's the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day. They're very upset about all of this because of their own position. For instance, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, their response was this, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's all they cared about. Now, what's always fascinating to me is that they were so upset that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead that their solution was to kill Jesus. And I would think, probably not going to work. He just raised somebody from the dead. Somehow I got the feeling that that's not the best strategy here. But that was their, their take, you see, because all they could think about is saving our position, saving our status, even if it meant rejecting the very presence of the Son of God. You see 
what idolatry did in their lives. Just like with Jezebel it made her, and, and Ahab, it made him completely blind to Naboth's righteousness. That he actually knew the law of God and was doing the right thing. It made them completely blind. They overlooked that completely. God wasn't even in the equation with them. All they had to do was get rid of Naboth and it would be theirs. But why did they think that they could get rid of Naboth and disregard the law of God? But they did. Why? Because it wasn't important to them. Why? Because the only thing that was important was serving their God was possession and power. That's what drove them. That's what they had become. The Pharisees. You would have thought of all the people in ancient Israel, they would be the ones, these studiers of the law, they would be the ones to see the Son of God when he came. But they couldn't. Why? Because they missed him. Why? Because their God was really their own status in front of the people. That's all they cared about. And as long as they could maintain that, then that's all that mattered. Pilate even saw it. When Jesus was before Pilate, and he, he saw through the whole situation. And both in Matthew and Mark's gospel, you, you, Pilate's thoughts are revealed that he realizes it's just because of envy that they've brought Jesus to him. Even he gets it. He can see it. But the religious leaders can't even see it in themselves to help them see it. Jesus tells a story. Next day, after he enters Jerusalem, listen. Matthew 21, verse 33. Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. When it falls on anyone's, it'll crush him. Now listen to this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They got it. They knew that he was speaking about them. What was he speaking about them? Well, he was speaking that there was this vineyard. Now please know that Israel was always known in the Old Testament as God's vineyard. And that this vineyard, this people of God, belong to God. And so Jesus tells this story. So when he talks about a vineyard, it's just not some abstract sort of hypothetical kind of, oh, what does this mean? No, 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 no. Everybody knew what he, what he was talking about, saying, listen, God has a vineyard. It's his people. And there's this group of people that have come in and commandeered his people. They've occupied them, not the Romans at all. 
It's not them. It's this, this group of Pharisees, this religious leaders. They've, they've commandeered the people of God. And so, so God keeps coming and saying, hey, I need to talk to you about my people. And so he sends prophets to them, and they kill the prophets. So he says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to send my son. And so he sends his son. Surely they'll respect his son, but they don't. They actually kill his son. Oh, why? How could they miss the very son of God? Because they're blinded by their own God. They're so blinded by their need for status, by their need for position, by their own place, that they kill the very Son of God. And they know it. They know it. They know this is about us. And rather than repent, they're completely blind. The scary thing, <coughs> excuse me, the scary thing is that that's what happens when idolatry, idolatry creeps into us. When we start elevating that which isn't God to the place of God, we serve it, we become it, we resemble it, it becomes our own identity, and we miss God, you see. So, how do we not miss him? Well, we revere what we revere, we resemble. So we need to go to revering God. How do we do that? Well, Paul, he writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 18, puts it like this. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit says, listen, what we must do is behold the glory of the Lord. That's what transforms us. We've, we've been made to be imaging beings. And so we need to behold that is to revere. We need to behold that is to honor. We need to behold that is to worship the glory of the Lord. We need to gaze upon him. And that is to say, we're to think upon him, who he is. We're to meditate upon the word that is true, the word that is about him, so that we see him, if you will, metaphorically speaking, see him in, in, in our hearts, uh, uh, with our heart's eyes, so we know who he is. We say, that's it. And there's something, you see, that, 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 that is transforming about that, about meditating upon him, about thinking upon him, upon seeing him. So we come to this table. Because you see, it was that night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, which is to say, behold me, right? Revere me. In the same way, our Lord Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks, he too gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, when you do this, behold me. Think of me. Revere me. Meditate upon me. Spiritually speaking, see me, right? Behold me. You've been meant to be an imaging being. Behold me. Resemble me. Resemble me.
Because you see, we're really afraid, the guts of it is we're really afraid to come to God because when we're, we're afraid that we come to God, he'll reject us. Because deep down, we know our own sin. But you see, when we behold Jesus, we realize he won't reject us. He'll actually receive us. The king who comes, comes to conquer. What's he come to conquer? Not the Romans. He comes to conquer sin and death. He comes to conquer our own hearts. He comes to captivate us, make, make us captive to himself, to bring us to his father. All of that, and he does because he dies for us so that our sins be forgiven so all who trust in him will be reconciled to God. So he says, don't be afraid to come. Don't be afraid to come. I, I came so that you could come to the Father. So I won't reject you. So you don't have to make up other gods out there uh, to, 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 to substitute for me. No, come to me. And evaluate and know everything through me, you see. So come to me. He said, can we really trust me? So look what I've done. I've, I've met the, you want security. I've met the guts of that. I've reconciled you to God. If God is for you, who can be against you? You want provision, trust me. In my providence, I'll care for you. And I'll grant you that which is the greatest value. And everything will be subservient to your salvation, your wholeness. Because what makes you whole is being reconciled to me. What makes you whole is resembling Jesus, being conformed to his image as my image bearer. Come, and I'll do that. Trust me. And so we come on this day to combat this idolatrous tendency that we have. And we combat this idolatrous tendency that we have by beholding the Lord. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us. You would forgive our sins. And you would enable us to cast our eyes upon Jesus to behold the glory of the Lord. So reveal him to us as you do through the gospel, through the scriptures, as the savior of sinners, as the Lord of all, as the lover of his people. Father, enable us then to believe so that for us, we would have no other gods before you. And so then as we make decisions, as we think through life, we do so always aware of the very presence of Christ. And always informed by his wisdom, his truth, his spirit. So now I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way that would enable us to know that we are in the very presence of God, indeed, the very presence of Christ. And the Father, even as we come to him, though this bread and juice remains bread and juice, as we come to him, that you will give us strength, to faith, to believe, to trust, And this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy.
We receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desire to live a life consistent with that profession of faith. Not a life of perfection, but a life that's saying, yes, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is he. And thus I live my life recognizing that which is true about God, true about me. Make confession, repentance, seek his strength and help that I might walk with him. That be true for you. We invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Uh, dip it in the cup. And remind yourself, I shall have no other gods. I shall trust in Jesus. Please come.